It's early in the morning and the sun is not up yet. Most Londoners are tucked up in bed, oblivious to the world around them. Little do they realise that a select tiny group of mudlarkers have been up for several hours, scouring the foreshore of the River Thames on their hands and knees at low tide. They're not mad. They are modern-day time travellers unearthing our past, your past. Something glistens under the stones and debris, begging to be found. Euphoria sets in with mind-blowing, heart-pumping adrenaline as a coin, untouched since it was lost 350 years ago, appears as if by magic, reaching out, imploring its finder to unravel its mysteries. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy, telling the timeless stories of London's hidden personalities. Well, here we are in West London for one of my first um, podcasts for Your London Legacy. And I have to say, I'm really, really excited about this one. The chap I'm speaking to today is one of the most interesting guys I've come across in an awful long time. He hails from America. I think he studied in New York. That's correct. um, In architecture. And he has been living in London for about 10 years, I believe. Recently, or very recently this week, to become... A full, fully-fledged Brit. Yes, on Wednesday. Fantastic. So, background in architecture, has built some, or designed some amazing structures uh, in this country and elsewhere around the world. Uh, Award-winning designs, I believe. Yes. But has a a, a very, very interesting pastime, which we're going to dig into, if I can use that that expression. We're going to dig into in uh, quite some style as we go forward. So, I'm sitting here in this amazing... Aladdin's cave surrounded by wonderful artifacts which you're going to find out all about very shortly. So I'm I'm really really delighted to welcome Jason Sandy to your London legacy. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure and thank you very much for welcoming me into your lovely home and uh, your your wife and kids are being very accommodating <laughs> and keeping quiet in the room next door. So t- before we start about um your wonderful fascinating pastime just tell us a little bit about um how you came to live and work in London from, from America. Um, so growing up, at age 11, my parents brought me to Europe for the first time, and I absolutely loved it. I never came to England until much later, but I was absolutely in love with uh, Germany at the time. And I moved to Germany, lived and worked in Berlin for about eight years before I moved to the UK. Uh, my wife was heavily pregnant when we moved here 10 years ago. Yeah, it was kind of a decision in our lives to to part with Germany and move to the UK, which personally I wasn't too happy about at the time. But now I absolutely love London and I would never want to live anywhere else. So I'm very happy to be here. So what excites you most about being a fully naturalized Brit this week? <laughs> You're just excited about, I mean, you've lived here now for 10 years. You feel part of the, part of the furniture now? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you'll see through all the historic finds that I've found, uh, it's just my education has just come from learning from the things that I find. And uh, it's just been a great learning process. And it's uh, one of the few places in the world that you can actually still find ancient relics just kicking around. And just anybody can go down and collect that. Whereas in the United States, we don't have that much history. It's only about 200 years of history. And before that, the native Indians, they didn't build many things in stone. They didn't uh, create a lot of things that were durable for a long period of time. So a lot of things were made of timber, which is long gone. Whereas a lot of the things here in the UK that you find are made of metal, 
or very durable stone like flint tools, etc., which lasts a very long amount of time. Mm. So I just absolutely love London and the history and the fact that you can still go down as just a normal person, not even a trained archaeologist, and discover history for yourself. Well, you've let the cat out of the bag a little bit, which is fine <laughs> because that's what that's what we're here to do. So let's let's sort of jump straight in and talk about your I don't know if you call it a hobby, a pastime, or certainly a passion. I don't know what what do you call it? I would say a hobby. A yeah. hobby. Okay, let's call it a hobby. Mudlarking. Now, the first time I think I ever heard about mudlarking was uh, well, I studied English literature at um, for A levels at school, and I think one of the books we read at the time was Charles Dickens' um, Our Mutual Friend, mm-hmm. which was based the theme throughout the whole of Our Mutual Friend is the, is the River Thames. And it was all about the people who lived and worked and died on on the Thames. And some of the characters there made their living on the Thames. I think they were called Watermen. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. But this was yes. going back several hundred years. And that was the first time I ever sort of understood that there were things going on the surface and under the surface of, of the Thames. And it sort of sparked my interest then. Now I come across you, Jason, uh, and see you on uh, on Instagram with your huge following. And it's just blow me away the sort of things that you are finding as a mudlarker. So what exactly is a mudlarker and how do you become one? So the term kind of originates, as you rightly said, back in Victorian times. So around Charles Dickens, it was actually a recognized profession. So you could actually go down and most of the people were very young children that were uh, very impoverished at the time and just scrounging around looking for anything that would have been dropped off of a boat uh, that would have just float down the Thames and landed on the foreshore as the tide went out. So there were also many old women that went down there as well. And they were, again, they were just looking for anything that they could resell, anything of value. Coal was a big item because you could sell coal to your neighbor because everybody used coal to heat or to cook with. Ropes were also something valuable back then. So a lot of things were very utilitarian. They weren't looking for gold coins. They weren't looking for treasure. They were looking for anything that they could kind of salvage and then basically uh, resell uh, at the local pawn shop. Well, some of my memories from the book, Our Mutual Friend, were actually the characters were digging out dead bodies from the Thames Mm. and turning out their pockets to sell what they could find, you know, little morsels and bits of jewelry they could find to make a few quid, you know, from their meager living. So it's... Not surprising that there's so much down there. You know, I'm surprised you haven't dug up a few bodies, but <laughs> maybe you have. I think there's some skeletons in there somewhere. <laughs> so you're a trained architect. So what's the connection between architecture, which is building new modern structures, and then going to the minutiae of small, delicate things from the past? One's new and one's complete polar opposites in some respects, but very mm-hmm. connected. So how, what's the connection? How did you get involved with that? So my dad got his PhD in classical studies and studied the ancient world, uh, teaches or is a professor of Greek, teaches university students uh, the Greek language, but not modern Greek. He teaches ancient Greek. And uh, he was employed for many years as a translator of papyrus. So he would translate uh, ancient Egyptian as well as ancient Greek uh, papyrus texts of different trading throughout the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, etc. So I kind of grew up listening to the stories of the ancient world, as well as uh, my dad took his students on trips to Greece. And I was always jealous because he would leave me at home with my grandmother. 
It would take uh, my mom and my brother and I would be stuck uh, at my grandmother's house for several weeks as he would go to Greece. And it wasn't until last summer that we went to Greece for the first time together. So as a young boy, I was always seeing slideshows of Greece, of ancient temples. And one of my favorite things to see in the slideshows was when he would go to a museum and all of the beautiful uh, gold and uh, interesting artifacts that people have uh, found over the past on proper archaeological digs. So it was always my dream to go on one of these archaeological digs and find something spectacular. Unfortunately, that dream has never fulfilled itself, but um, this coming down to the Thames is really a fulfillment of that dream in a different way, and just discovering archaeology for myself and to, to touch something that knowing that the last person to touch that lived 500 years ago, that object becomes a a portal to the past. And it's just astounding that we can still hold and touch those items. Uh, So just going back to your original question, it's all because of my dad's interest in archaeology as when I was a kid. That's what kind of got me interested into it now. So why did you not pursue a career in archaeology as opposed to architecture? Uh, That's a very good question. I wasn't that interested in archaeology, and I didn't really know too much about the profession back then. I absolutely loved history, and my nickname back in uh, year eight was History Book. My friends would call me History Book because I could just recite dates like anything. A bit nerdy, I must say. but So I I loved to draw. I loved to paint. So architecture became kind of my main passion, and archaeology, that kind of developed much later in my life. So let's talk about mudlarking itself. How do you become a mudlarker? How do you get involved with that? And is there a community of mudlarkers? If there is, where do you hang out? (laughs) (laughs) The reason why I actually got into mudlarking here in London is um, I live very close to the river. We sit here in this room about two minutes walk from the river. So we're actually very close uh, here in Chiswick, that is in West London. I used to take my kids down there when they were much smaller, and we would just turn over stones to look for baby eels, or there's a lot of crabs in our area, baby shrimp, and all this other wildlife that kind of, when the tide goes out, uh, you can find all of this wildlife. So just taking the kids down there, I just loved being next to the water, hearing the waves, uh, seeing all the, the nature surrounding me. And it wasn't until much later that I actually watched a show on TV. It was on the National Geographic channel, and it was called Thames Treasure Hunters. And I was like, that sounds interesting. So I watched the show, and I was just gobsmacked that you could actually go down and still find something ancient uh, when the tide goes out. So just to explain, in London, uh, the river is still tidal. So the River Thames is tidal pretty much from the estuary all the way up to the Teddington Locks. So that's, I'm not sure how many miles or kilometers that is, but it's uh, quite a significant way that uh, the river is tidal. So within central London, the river fluctuates twice a day, goes up uh, about seven meters up and down. That's uh, the equivalent to almost a two-story building. So you can imagine how much water actually goes up and down the Thames every day. Uh, so at low tide, uh, it's, it's a different world down there. Uh, normally when you go at high tide to central London, the water level obviously is very high and there's not much space. But when the tide drops, it really becomes this kind of cavernous place 
because you have very high seawalls on both sides of the river within central London. And when the tide drops seven meters, it exposes large areas of the riverbed and creates this amazing space, an intertidal space that's only accessible for a couple of hours per day. And that's the thrill of going down there, is actually uh, stammering down a ladder, just barely holding on to this rusty thing, slipping and sliding on the way down, and just to be in a place where you don't think you should be, and it's a bit dangerous, a lot of broken glass. I have seen dead bodies down there. Uh, So it does get uh, very interesting. So just through the show that I saw, I really found a passion for mudlarking and started going frequently. To answer your question, uh, mudlarking is a restricted hobby. So through the Port of London Authority, you have to obtain a license, and the license is called a Thames Foreshore Permit. It's good for three years. You can always get a day pass as well. So day passes are around £35, pounds, mm-hmm. and uh, the three-year license is around £77. Pounds. So I have a standard permit that allows me to search with a metal detector in some areas. In some area, other areas, I'm only allowed to search by eye. So the north bank of the Thames is the most archaeological rich area of the foreshore because that's where the civilization has developed for over the last 2,000 years. So that's a heavily restricted area. And only around 50 people have what's called a Thames Mudlark license, which uh, there's a society called the Society of Thames Mudlarks, and that's a closed society uh, that you have to apply to get into, and they only accept people very infrequently. So I've been on the waiting list now for six years. You're not actually on the... uh... Uh, no. One of the select few. Exactly. There's oh, wow. only 50 people that are allowed to have that license. Okay. And so I what, heard what, that. I'm... So what's the criteria for getting the license that you've got and then the, the membership license, if you like, for the society? What's the, what do you need to do? What, what hurdles do you need to overcome? So as part of the original license that I received, anything that's 300 years or older, you have to report to the Museum of London. So the Museum of London is teamed up with the Port of London Authority in order to to regulate the system, to make sure that these artifacts don't go unrecorded, to make sure that you don't have people like night hawks that go down and excavate something, find something amazing, and then just pawn it off on eBay or sell it at an auction house. Uh, that does go on, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm hoping that not, that doesn't happen too often mm-hmm. these days. But uh, the mudlarks are very much have bought into this whole idea, and it's a two-way street. It's excellent what the Museum of London do for us. So I have an appointment pretty much every three months with them, where I just take in my whole bag of goodies that I've found, and uh, they identify things for us, they give us an actual date for things, and then they record them on what's called the Portable Antiquities Scheme. That scheme has been set up, uh, was set up about, I would say, six, seven years ago, and the sole purpose of that is for people, members of the public, to be able to record the amazing things that they find throughout Britain. So it's not just London, it's throughout Britain. And it's quite fascinating to see all of these things that metal detectorists find, field walkers find, as well as mudlarks along the Thames. So it's a great service that's provided by the Museum of London. Oh, it sounds absolutely amazing. And having seen some of the things you've, you've found and your colleague mudlarkers are found it's obviously providing a great deal of um, archaeological and historical interest and backfills a lot mm. of gaps in information and knowledge um, that historians don't don't have and we don't have as as londoners and, and you know world historians 
So what you're doing is not only fascinating for yourself, but mm-hmm. it's also providing a, a wider service to the community. Exactly. Which fulfills all your passions for architecture, archaeology, history, mm-hmm. and, uh, and something which I guess keeps you fit as well. I mean, some of these ladders that go down from street level down to the, 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 the bank, the shores of the Thames, they, they look pretty pretty dodgy to me. I don't know. I mean, yes. you have to, do you have to have special insurance, life insurance? Really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you don't. It's kind of you go down at your own risk. Uh, you have to watch the tides because they do come in very quickly. So the tide normally it takes, well, I go down about two hours before li- low tide. And I come out around one hour after low tide because the water does rush in. So typically, I mean, this time of year in in January, what what sort of times you talking about going to visit? For instance, this Saturday is a very good uh, low tide. So, well, actually, on Friday I'm taking off work to go mudlarking. Okay, we won't tell anyone. <laughs> it's official. <laughs> but uh, typically, the low tides are in the morning. Uh, so spring tides are very good. So this time of year is excellent. One of the lowest tides of the year is actually happening this weekend. Um, and then also in summertime, the tides flip. So the tides, the lowest tides are actually happening very late at night. So I, what's called night lark, when I go down with my head torch in okay. the middle of the night and go uh, scour the Thames looking for finds at these extremely low tides. I bet you get some strange looks from... Uh people passing by. Yes, we do. <laughs> but we also have to be careful because there's a lot of people drinking along the river wall. Oh, the winos. <laughs> and they, they throw their uh, pint glasses at us and oh, bottles oh, right. and other things. Okay. So. You, mean, you mean people chucking out from the pub time? Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. not, not just the homeless who are lobbing their bottles over the top. No, they're, they're less of the concern. They have right. respect for us, but okay. it's a lot of the drunken revelers that uh, have caused serious injury in the past. So, so. do you... Do you go down serious injury to you have you been injured uh, by not, flying not bottles to, to myself no, okay. i've had something thrown at me but um yeah that was more a buoy but i think they obviously <laughs> knew i was down there for a different <laughs> right. reason so do, do you tend to go down on your own or do you go down with fellow mudlarkers or what's the protocol what's the procedure normally Typically, well, it's kind of, a, again, a, a bit of a two-way street. You don't want to go down when there's too many people, because sure. obviously you want to have the best chance of finding something significant by not having too many people around you. But you definitely don't want to go alone, even though sometimes I do. Mm. Don't tell my wife. But it's obviously very thrilling to go uh, when you um, are alone. But uh, obviously, because of all the hazards that are involved, you could be swept out to sea very quickly. You could stumble hurt yourself and then there's nobody there so you definitely always take your mobile phone mm. with you you're supposed to wear like high visibility sure. clothing as well in case something does happen and always wear gloves uh because there's obviously a lot of cut glass a sure. broken glass down yeah. there etc so. sturdy footwear as well i would have thought. exactly so yeah. nice sturdy wellies yes so one of the mudlarks that uh is part of the official society of thames mudlarks he unfortunately passed away about two years ago. His name is Tony Pilson, and he either gave, donated, or sold uh, two of his major collections to the Museum of London. And from that, uh, from that collection, they've written a book called Toys, Trifles, and Trinkets that was written by Hazel Forthsith and uh, Jeff Egan. And literally, a lot of these finds have rewritten history, and it's quite amazing to actually see all of these toys, so pewter toys from medieval times to pretty much the 18th century, 
that have been found by mudlarks. So the whole book is about mudlarking finds, and it really is a catalog of all of the different toys that kids used to play with along the Thames for centuries and either dropped in there by accident were disposed of in there when they broke. Uh, but as I'm flipping through right now, you can see some of the amazing, amazing decorative little toys that little kids played with uh, centuries ago. So Jason has just brought down from his bookshelf a large hardback volume of, I don't know how many pages we got in this, Jason. I would it's say it's five, about... 600 pages. Yeah, probably. Just mm-hmm. rammed full of pictures and descriptions of all these items, toys and tableware and things which have just been found. This is just through Mudlock and this is just one man's collection. Yeah, pretty much one man's collection. It's supplemented by a couple of other examples uh, that were found on archaeological sites, but pretty much the whole basis of the book is from Mudlarking Finds. And uh, the woman that wrote it in an interview a while back has said that uh, through these finds, uh, they've actually rewritten history because a lot of times in medieval times, they assumed Uh, wrongly, that kids didn't have toys, that they were forced to work, that they were born and raised just to be a workforce. That's what my kids tell me. (laughs) (laughs) That they didn't actually have time to enjoy themselves. But just seeing the uh, the decorative pewter toys Mm. from that time period, you can really see they really did enjoy themselves and had a lot of fun. And a lot of these uh, toys imitate different styles of the time. So the one image that we're looking at at the moment is a pewter plate that actually has a roast on it. It looks like a a pig that's in the center of the plate. So obviously it's not a a real pig. It's an illustration of a pig that would have been on there. So it's quite fascinating to see how little girls would imitate their mothers by having toys that were very similar to lifelike So this is like a little um, home corner for for kids from, I don't know, Victorian times? or Uh, No, much earlier. Much earlier than this. Much, much earlier. So medieval to... So medieval uh, little home corner. They've got their own little nursery in pewterware. Exactly. Which is incredible. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I found not too long ago is called a toy dripping pan. And when I found that, I was uh, completely astounded and couldn't figure out what in the world it was. So I took it into the Museum of London and showed them. And the woman archaeologist knew exactly what it was straight away, which I was very thankful that she could at least identify it. Uh, so I'm just picking out one of the objects in my let me, collection. Let me just, for the for the listeners, explain where, where we are. We're sitting, is this your study or reading room or what is this, your exhibit room? Study. This yeah. is, we're sitting in Jason's study. So on either side, we, we've got uh, floor to ceiling bookcases rammed full of uh, reading material and historical books. And there's some journals here as well and some novels as well. And at the back of the room, we have got a, a, a table um, with display, I don't know, what have we got here? One, two, three, glass, no, four, five, 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 five glass display cabinets full of coins and, um, uh, well, you'll, you'll tell us what, what, what else we've got here, buckles and thimbles buttons. and buttons and things. And at the back, we've got several jars full of um, smoking pipes by the looks of it. Yes, yeah, exactly. smoking pipes and china and all sorts. So, we're going to now dig into some of these items. Um, so Jason's going to explain some of the items that he's got here. And so let's go back to what you've got in your hand there. So just going back to the book, The Toys, Trifles, and Trinkets, it's all of the pewter toys that have been found over the last uh, three decades. So since the invention of the metal detector, it's really changed the game for mudlarks because obviously previously they were just looking by eye 
or just uh, sieving or sifting the mud through the mud. But now with metal detectors, obviously you can kind of pretty much see through the mud and detect these amazing uh, metallic objects. And they come out uh, almost as if they were dropped yesterday because the Thames mud is very dense and it's anaerobic, which means no oxygen. So a lot of times things come out as shiny as the day they were actually dropped hundreds and even thousands of so years ago. So they're actually, the Thames is actually preserving items that are dropped yes. there. Is, yes. Does that go for most materials, metals and wood as well? Um, yes, yeah. very much so. Yeah. So all organic material is mm -hmm. pretty much perfectly preserved. So that's why the Thames is such a rich environment for archaeology, uh, because on land, a lot of, for instance, leatherwork erodes or uh, disintegrates very quickly. Whereas we've found leather Roman shoes that are 2,000 years old wow. uh, that have just been stuck in this waterlogged condition for centuries, even millennia, and they come out with the child's footprint still in the bottom, uh, in the sole. And that's the something shoe. you found yourself? Uh, I didn't find no. that. This is one of my friends, wow. but yes. That's incredible. Yes. I had a metal detector as a kid, and I found a few things, not... not we used to go to parks and commons and things, and we shouldn't probably have been digging around, but we did. <laughs> but the most thing I found was like a few um, farthings, I think, Victorian farthings and a George II coin, some bullet casings mm -hmm. and some other nonsense. But uh, I once went down with a friend to, to the Thames, and we, the only thing we ever found was a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a penny farthing or anything exciting. It was like an old chopper or something. So what have you got in your hand there? So this is a toy dripping pan, which sounds very unusual, and it is quite uh, interesting in terms of it's actually articulated. It? Yes. It's articulated with a rose. So the English rose is depicted in the center of the dripping pan, and it has a lip around the edge. So basically, what a small girl would do is imitate her mother. So every Sunday or whenever they would have a good roast, you would put a, a pan to collect all the fat that was dripping, and that's how you would make your gravy, similar to the way that we do a nice roast these days. Uh, so this uh, small girl used to have a toy version of that dripping pan, and she would have her little oven as well, and she would pretend to make a roast, and this was the dripping pan that she would put in her little oven to collect, quote-unquote, or pretend to collect all of the fat dripping from the roast. And, and how do they know that? I mean, how do they... I mean, presumably this has been taken, what, to the museum, the London Museum? Yes. And they've identified this as a toy dripping pan. Yes, exactly. W what have they got to benchmark this against? How do they know this is what, what they say it is? Yeah. So uh, through this book, they've been able to document uh, so many unusual things that have been found in the Thames. And the way that they date a lot of this stuff, because the Thames doesn't really have normal stratification, like you see on land, it's all very much mixed up. Uh, by the river tides, uh, but through archaeological sites on land, they're able to date parallel objects, and then they can ascertain, ascertain um, yeah. how old these objects are. So how old is this toy dripping pan I've got uh, here? So that's from the 17th century, so wow. mid-17th century. So that's well, roughly from the time of the Great Fire of London. That's just ridiculous that, yeah. that, that I'm even, you're even allowing me to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel very, uh, uh, it's just amazing. Very privileged. And it's it's tiny. I mean, what is it? It's about an inch and a half, if that, mm -hmm. long by, I don't yes. know, what, a half, three quarters of an inch wide mm -hmm. with, what, what what metal is it? Uh, it's pewter. It's pewter. Yeah. And it's, it's not engraving. I wouldn't call that engraving. I don't know. What is that? 
So um, the, it's kind of a molded surface. So this yeah. would have been cast into uh, a mold. So wow. typically they took a very uh, fine stone yes. and carve a very delicate right. uh, pattern into that and then cast the molten pewter, which mm. had a very uh, low melting point, into that mold and then mm. pop that out. So what condition was this in when you found it in the first place? Was it pretty much as it is now? That is exactly it. Really? So you I just only, put it under some warm water yep, and wash it off? And, and yep. I normally just take a toothbrush and uh, a bit of soapy water and just scrub it a little bit. That and is that's just it. remarkable. So again, the anaerobic mud of the Thames perfectly preserves yeah. these things. Yeah. And as you'll see later... Uh, Let me hand that back to you before I do <laughs> damage to it after 400 years or whatever. Okay, so select something else from this um, Aladdin's cave you've got here of, of wonders. Should we uh, maybe start from the beginning of time, as it were? So London was initially started, well, even rewinding earlier than that, there was no civilization along the Thames uh, for many millennia. There were many tribes that lived along the Thames, but there was no kind of settlement, as it were, that, um, that we have actually found along the Thames from before the Roman times. So the Romans arrived in about 55 BC, but they were unsuccessful in establishing a colony here. It wasn't until 43 AD that they started a, a small colony, small settlement along the River Thames, and they chose the Walbrook Stream, which is in central London, uh, very close to Cannon Street Station. And that used to flow into the Thames and created f fresh water for them. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they chose that area is because of uh, Ludgate Hill. So where St. Paul's is, that was one of the highest hills that was right beside the Thames. And also that's where the, um, the tidal element of the river stopped. So their boats, they would come in, sail in as the water was coming upstream, and they would sail back out as the tide was going out. So some of my favorite finds are actually from the Roman period, uh, which lasted about 400 years. So from 43 AD until about 426 AD, the Romans uh, had their settlement here. So the coin that you're currently holding in your hand is uh, quite spectacular, just because there's so much detail still on that. It's from Diocletian, who reigned about 360 AD. Uh, don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, but you can even see the hair on his head still. It's just in such great so, condition. Say, say that year again? About 360 AD. 360 AD. So it's about and I'm sort of shaking here, holding this in my hand. I've, I've never held anything quite so, uh, so ancient. And is this valuable? was just of historical importance rather than monetary uh, value. Yeah, it's very important historically. Mm. It's not very valuable because the Romans produced so many coins and so many have been found that uh, a lot of mudlarks, they don't really um, appreciate the Roman coins as much just because they aren't very valuable. Yeah. Uh, some mudlarks do like to resell things and a hammered coin is worth a lot more than, say, a, a grotty Roman coin, as they would call it. But one thing that... Uh, but the I did condition of this coin... The, the, the head side is just amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can see nearly all the, all the writing around the side, that the head. So who, which um, emperor is that? So this is Diocletian. Diocletian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that is just stunningly good condition, isn't it? Yes. That's yeah. just amazing. And who's that on the reverse? Uh, that's uh, some god. I'm not sure exactly which god. They had so many of them yeah. that I've uh, yeah. forgotten. Okay. I'll let me uh, give but, it back to you before I spend it. Yeah. <laughs> So this other coin is also Roman. It's not in a very good condition, mm. but you can make out his face. You can. 
And uh, this is actually uh, minted in Constantinople, so in Turkey. And uh, this was uh, identified by the British Museum. And uh, they said this is the first coin that's been recorded on the portable antiquity scheme uh, from Constantinople from this emperor. Um, I, I need to check the emperor. I'm not sure. I, mm. I forget the name of him uh, because it wasn't one of the key emperors at that time. But uh, it's quite unusual and also fascinating to think that this coin exchanged so many hands mm. from merchants and traders. That, that is what's so amazing about it. As it made its way from Constantinople, from Istanbul, all yes. the way to Londinium yeah. back in uh, the 4th century AD. The fact it even got here at all is remarkable. Yes. Considering the means of transport. And the, what year? Uh, so this is uh, 4th century. 4th century. Yeah. That's just incredible. I hope to be taking some photographs of this, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we can, we can put this alongside the, uh, the podcast as well. So I've got an interesting item here. Uh, you might have cheated and looked on my Instagram feed. Well, I wouldn't admit it if I have, but yes, go but on. What do you think this is? Um, Maybe describe it first so the listeners well, can Well, it hear. looks almost like it should be the top half of a ring, but it's got some sort of pointy pointy bit on the top and two holes either side i i really couldn't say it looks like it should be some sort of jewelry piece okay well you're very close actually when okay. i when i found this it was actually sticking out of the mud like mm. this okay and uh i personally thought it was maybe a medieval spur so you would fix that on the side or the back of your boot and you can see there's two holes on both sides of it yes and it looks like it could actually fit on the back of a shoe because it's got kind of an arch or curvature to it. But uh, I posted this on Facebook uh, because I wasn't sure exactly what it was. And I said to everybody, this is a medieval spur. Mm. And somebody corrected me and said it was something even more fascinating. Go on. So stretch out your hand and I'll put it on top. <laughs> It's a medieval knight's knuckle guard. Ah, I was going to say so, a knuckle duster. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> okay. uh, it's from approximately the 14th century. So this has been recorded by the Museum of London on the British Museum's website. And uh, last year I had the good, good fortune of actually going and seeing one of the original ones. So the Black Prince, who's the son of Edward III, uh -huh. um, he has an effigy over in Canterbury Cathedral. Right. And his knight's gauntlet is very, very similar to the one that I found here. So that's why it's so fascinating. And I'm just pulling up a picture on my phone to show you. So I'm wearing something that could be attributed to that era. Absolutely. A, a, a knight's. Oh, uh, yes. So it is. So wow. I'm just showing you a, a picture at the moment of the original knight's gauntlet. Uh, so this is made out of brass. And it used to have a leather glove underneath. That's why you have the two holes on both sides, uh -huh. because it was sewn or riveted to the leather glove below to protect your hand. And then you would literally, on top of your hand, have a steel, almost well, brass encasement in order to protect your hand when you were fighting hand-to-hand uh, so -hand combat. Possibly was, was worn in battle by some well-to-do knight. Yes, absolutely. Associated by royalty. Yes, so I actually found this not too far from mm. the Knights Templar. Do you know the Knights yes, Templar? Yes, yes. So I actually went there yesterday uh, uh -huh. to do a bit more research okay. on this. And uh, it's quite fascinating because they're actually based along the Thames uh, for centuries. And they're the medieval knights that actually went uh, to Jerusalem to fight in the Holy Wars. Okay. So they were in charge of protecting pilgrims that were leaving Europe 
uh, to go to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, and they would protect the pilgrims on the way there and on their way back. So I would love to somehow find out whether this was actually connected to a crusade wow. or one of the holy wars, but this, I'll, I'll never find this out. This is just really. remarkable. I feel like I'm in sort of some sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark looking for the Holy <laughs> Grail or something. Some of these are. It's, it, it sort of sends shivers down one's spine, the, the connection with, with the past. I mean, this is the best. Forget about books and history lessons. This this is just absolutely perfect, isn't it? Well, that's the brilliant thing about mudlarking. It's all about hands-on history. Yes. And each object, as I mentioned earlier, is a portal into the past. Mm. So can you read the date on this coin? If I'm not mistaken, 1571. Yes, exactly. So that's the reign of uh, Queen Elizabeth I. <laughs> and I found this coin right in front of the Globe Theater. Oh, so it could have actually been from one of the theater goers back in the uh, 16th century that was going to see one of the original Shakespeare, Shakespeare plays. So the reason why the bust, uh, so the front of the coin normally has a bust of the queen on it. The reason why it's worn smooth is because um, people, for good luck, would rub Elizabeth's face. Right. So they would actually rub off the face just to bring themselves good luck. But the reverse of this is almost as if it was uh, made yesterday. That it's got perfect, a lot of it? detail on it. That's a crest of some, some description? Yeah, it's the crest. So the, the royal coat of arms, as it were. And what is the lettering around the outside? Um, Do we know so what that says? I'm, I'm not sure exactly okay. what it says. It's It's been a while since I've translated that. Yeah. But uh, again, just uh, to find something of the place, so to find something in front of Shakespeare's Globe Theater that actually originates from that time, that's what I love about mudlarking. Another interesting item, again, I love coins, but I also love utilitarian items. That is like a, an Afro comb. <laughs> <laughs> so you're holding a, a comb, it's a Tudor knit comb from back in the 16th century. It's not complete. But it's actually made of elephant's ivory. So it also goes to show that people were trading uh, with Africa back in the 16th century. So the old trade routes uh, would go past Africa and ships would stop there, trade different raw materials with the locals, and then sail back to England. And the fact that this was used for an everyday comb uh, shows that a lot of elephant ivory was in circulation back then. So it also tells you a little bit about the, uh, the number of elephants that were in Africa at the time as well. Mm. So you can see there's two types or two sides to the comb. One is for styling, which has uh, very long teeth. The other side has very uh, thin, narrow teeth, and that would be used to comb out the nits. Comb out the nits. And so they still have very similar products yes, today. Exactly. And uh, you can see there's particles of sand actually still between the yes. fine teeth. Yeah. And uh, I'd no love nits, to kind though. of zoom in <laughs> and see if there's actually a dead nit. There might be. There might well be a dead nit. I don't know how, the, how well preserved that would be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> might be worth popping that under a, a high-powered microscope. Having exactly. A look. Yeah. So another rare artifact that I found is, um, as we were mentioning before, about how people would make the the pewter toys. This is actually a stone mold for making uh, fake coins. So back in the... When uh, you say fake, do you mean forged? Uh, so a bit <laughs> of both. That's quite interesting. It was actually uh, used by a lot of people at that time. But silver coinage, like this hammered coin that I'm holding in my hand at the moment, uh, that was worth a lot of money, so much that you can see the cross that goes to the center, mm -hmm. what people would do would they would take a penny and they would cut that in four halves to make 
a farthing. So that's where the original word for farthing comes in. They're still they're no longer in circulation, but uh, back even in the early 20th century, there used to be farthings in circulation, which mm. means a fourth. So they would mm. cut their silver coins in in quarters in order to buy something smaller. But that still was like a man's week's wages. And so therefore, you couldn't buy bread, you couldn't buy essential bits at the shop with such a uh, an expensive coin. So what they would do is actually make their own coinage by taking molten lead and pouring it into a mold. So this is a sandstone mold that I found also on the Thames foreshore. And you can see these very crude types of uh, shapes and patterns that have been etched into a round disc. So it almost looks like a piece of, well, it's sandstone. It looks like it's almost fossilized, but it's not. These are indentations specifically made to beat into, beat out coin coin shapes. Exactly. Yeah. So they didn't actually beat them. It was cast. cast so they would them. actually cast these. And you can see what they call the casting sprue, which is a channel down the center. So what we're looking at, it has three discs with different patterns in there with a central channel where they would cast in or pour in Mm. the molten lead. And then when that would uh, harden, they would just pop it out. That's why these coins only have uh, decoration on one side. And that's very similar to, say, this one here. And as you can see, there were... A lot of these in circulation. So at this, that so time. this isn't genuine to the Queen's money, is it? No. It's not genuine currency. No, it, but this was. This you can was see. used to trade, though, presumably. Yes, yes. So a lot of people would use these uh, because it was inexpensive, mm. uh, as as we would say now, pocket change uh, that you could use anywhere in the local area. So a lot of shops would recognize this coinage, and also they had different motifs. And you can see here, there's on one side, there's a, a wine kind of kiraf, and on the other side, a wine glass. So this is a, a, a pub token, so a tavern token. Mm. Uh, so from one of the early public houses, and this was their coinage that they made uh, that could be used to buy a pint or to, to buy anything else at the pub. So it's their own sort of um, cryptocurrency. Exactly. <laughs> early exactly. cryptocurrency. So Bitcoin. As, yeah, so as that developed... Then more coinage was made uh, around the time of the Great Fire of London. Oh, look at that. This one is from the Golden Fleece Tavern. Crikey. Which is where? Um, Do we know where that so was? I'm, I'm not sure exactly where that was. But a lot of these coins are actually this made of tiny. copper. Yeah. They're very small. This is also worth a farthing. Uh, so this is probably from a butcher. And that one says mm. uh, near Radcliffe Highway, which is right there in Wapping. So not too far from the river. And it shows a bull on it. Mm. So these coins were made because there was, again, a shortage of small denomination coinage. And uh, it's actually more interesting to find those than a normal coin from that time period. Because each one of these shop sellers was made their own coinage. So you can almost make a map of London and know which shop was on each street. Sure. Because uh, if you notice, they have the shop makers, normally their name on it, as well as uh, what the name of their shop was in each one. And it even tells you if the guy was married or not, because he puts his wife wife's initial <laughs> on it as well. But this coinage was banned and around 1672, and ended officially in 1674, when the king, uh, Charles II, started making his own copper coinage that was then the official coinage of that time. 
What is the physical process of, of finding this stuff? Obviously, for metal detectors, me metal detectors won't pick up all metals. They'll mm. just pick up certain metals. Is that correct? Or are they now uh, more, they're, they're more advanced than when I was a kid? <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, metal detectors pretty much find every metal now. Every metal. But the problem is there's so much rust and iron on the foreshore mm. uh, because everybody used the Thames as pretty much their rubbish dump for centuries. Mm. And there were so many uh, shipbuilding and shipbreaking companies located along the Thames. And so the foreshore, as you'll see it at some point, is literally just littered with iron. Mm. And it's so difficult to discern a good find like a coin amongst all the iron. So to be honest, I have a metal detector, but I don't use it that much because I prefer to search by eye. And I would say most of my best finds are all found by eye. So when you say by eye... You don't dig with your bare hands. Presumably, you take a shovel of some description, or you, or are you lit literally sifting like you're sifting for gold, panning for gold? Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, there's restricted areas, so I'm not allowed to actually disturb the surface in central London along the North Bank. So, literally, I just walk. Uh, I have gloves. I even have knee pads. Mm -hmm. I crawl around on the foreshore. I look like a complete idiot. So you're very dedicated to your complete loser. Art. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but actually, a lot of these things, as you can see, are so small and so delicate. Yes. They go unmissed unless they're right. And in front are, of are these news. just literally just the ones you find just just sitting on the surface between? bits of brick and sand or they just, yes they're, they're just there yeah so, so we're you, walking past this stuff every single exactly, day as we walk across the bridges exactly. and the, and the this so is just remarkable as as mudlarks say you have to get your eye in yeah because uh you really it took me almost a year to find my first old coin but then as soon as you get your eye in then they start popping up everywhere because get one, you get learn, two. yeah yeah you yeah. learn to kind of uh look to see the clues so the, Everything we're seeing here, and there's hundreds and hundreds of different artifacts, let's call them that, this is all found predominantly just by sifting and looking and finding with the, the eye, some with a metal detector. Yes. But mostly this is just hours and hours of labor of love, just, yes, just looking exactly. and looking and looking. Just, just looking. So, so when you find a piece, do you then sort of stick it, like with a fish, you'd stick it in a keep nest if, you know, before you chuck it back so, or you yeah. take it home to eat. What, what do you do? Where, do? where do these go? What do you do with them? You put them in a bag, you take them in a rucksack, what, what do you yeah, so normally I have a small, uh, it's even a cigarette case, uh -huh. as it were, that uh, is just a small tin tray. Yeah. And then I pop them in there, and I've got small plastic bags oh, right. that I just okay, kind like of put little, things in. Yeah. And especially if it's a, a high-value find, mm -hmm. or a historically very interesting find, I'd wrap it many times to make right. sure it's protected. So here's my um, insurance background coming out. <laughs> <laughs> do you... Do you have to insure these items? I mean, for a start, these belong to you, what you find? So, very interesting question. So, in London, uh, the Crown Estate owns pretty much all of the foreshore. Okay. And uh, I'm not sure if you know, but most of the UK coastline, up to 11 miles out to sea, is owned by the Queen. Okay. So, technically, all of this stuff is property of the Queen. Owning the foreshore and owning things that are found on the foreshore is not part of it, but is just loose. Is that the same thing? Is that they, they claim that as well? Yes. Yeah, so technically, yeah. technically, if they wanted anything out of this collection, they could have it because technically it's theirs. And I'm hoping that the Queen will ring me up someday. <laughs> I bet you are. And will invite me over for a cup of tea to Buckingham Palace yeah. and I'll give her her lost property back. <laughs> And she's saying, you know that knuckle dust that you, that you found? Oh, I haven't seen there for a few weeks. <laughs> I want that one back. But also everything here, 
Mm. And I repeat, there's hundreds of items here. These are all logged and recorded, both yes. by you and the Museum of London? Yeah, so yeah. anything that's 300 years or older, I automatically take to the to the Museum of mm. London for recording. Uh, because there are so many people looking and finding things, uh, they actually struggle to record everything. So they limit the number of finds to five per session. So I find hundreds of things and I would say just a small fraction actually gets recorded, and it's only the the most stellar finds that get recorded. That means you've got to know what the most stellar finds are to to take them. You've got to yeah. assess in your opinion. Yes, because you, you could be missing something. Like, true, true. <laughs> so I pretty much take any old rubbish in, right. and they quickly peruse over everything and say, "Oh, that's interesting. That's not. That's rubbish. That's mm. not even old. That's mm. was made yesterday." But that's that's a good relationship that we have. They teach us a lot, and we learn from them. And it's kind of, uh, they see amazing artifacts that they normally mm. wouldn't see. Mm. Uh, so it, it's a win-win. We both get something out of that relationship. Mm. And how much of this do they take for their own sort of uh, display purposes? It's very rare for them to acquire anything, because they have so much stuff at the moment, and uh, they'll tell you themselves, their archives are just overflowing with mm. different artifacts. They only can display about 5% of what they actually have in their archives. So they have so much going on that they don't ask for much, only the most stellar finds they ask to acquire. So I've donated uh, three artifacts, two to the Museum of London and one to the uh, museum, well, it's called the um, King Richard III Visitors Center in Leicester. Okay. Is that near the car park? <laughs> uh, yes, it actually is on the car park. On the car park, yeah. where his remains were found a couple of years back. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. So that was one of my all-time best finds, is I found one of his boar badges. So his emblem... Actually which, his? Yeah, wow. well, not well, his. One of his entourage. Or, exactly. Yeah, yeah so they, they link it back to his coronation. There was a parade route from... Uh, you normally started when you were becoming king. You would start at the Tower of London and work your way along the procession through central London all the way to Westminster. So along the parade route, they would give people, what, what would you say, a pin or a pendant? Yeah. Very similar to, to today, like when Obama was becoming president. Mm -hmm. For me as an American, I would wear an Obama pin yeah. to show where my allegiance was, who I was supporting. So back then, you also wore uh, a pendant or a pin to actually show where your allegiance was. King Richard III chose the Boar Badge as his heraldic symbol or his emblem. So Pewter, when it first comes out, looks silver. So his emblem was a white boar. So my boar badge that I found would have looked white and shiny when it was actually worn. And he only lasted as king for about two, two and a half years. So it was probably hastily chucked into the Thames when he, uh, when he was defeated in the Battle of Bosworth. Yeah, they no longer wanted to be seen with it. Exactly. <laughs> so to hide any allegiance to Richard yeah. III, they probably disposed of that very quickly. Mm. And uh, that was only one of two that have been found uh, in the Thames. Crikey. Yeah. That's fascinating. So... Beyond these display cases, we've also got several jars. Now, obviously, you've got lots of ceramics here. You, can, you know, it looks like a Greek restaurant. All this plate, <laughs> plate smashing going on. But presumably, these are, what, vases and plates and all sorts of things going on here. Bowls and jugs and things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, I love metallic finds, but I equally love uh, pottery mm. and ceramic mm. finds because there's so much uh, ornate decoration they're very vibrant in their colors. Mm. Uh, there's very different styles as well throughout the years. 
So I'll just show you some of the uh, the best ones in my collection. Sure. And I'll just pull this one from the top here. And I was just wondering if you can make out uh, this terracotta figure that's on the face of this piece of pottery. Looks like some some animal. Fox, perhaps? Yeah. So it's probably a dog. Okay. And this is uh, a fragment of a Samian ware bowl. And that's from Roman times. Okay. So this has been dated by the Museum of London to uh, between 43 and 100 AD. So it's roughly 1,900 years old. Wow. And it's quite a large fragment. And you can see the two animals. So a dog is chasing, it looks like some kind of beast. You only see its hind legs here. But you see the very stereotypical decoration Uh of the Romans, which is kind of above that, Mm. this border. What's also interesting is uh, Samian ware is normally um, a very reddish material. And it comes from France originally. So this was imported from Gaul. And uh, a lot of these pottery bases even have the maker's mark, the guy's name that made it stamped into the base. This one unfortunately doesn't. But uh, we know that it's been involved in a fire uh, because it's got a very burnt surface to it on Mm. both sides. And typically this style of pottery was not used for everyday cooking. This was kind of your fine china that you would just set out for displaying food or serving food, not for actually preparing or cooking food. So we know that uh, it was involved in a fire, and there were several fires around that time. And what I'd love to kind of link this piece to is when the Celtic queen Boudicca actually came into Roman London and destroyed it. Destroyed the Romans, yeah. 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 And uh, I'd love to have some link well, as a loss adjuster, he deals with fire claims a lot. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll put you in touch with some uh, forensic uh, scientists, but I don't think they'll go back that far. I mean, you can tell by the blackening at the top. Is that what you're looking at that's showing that it's been involved in a yes, fire? Yes, exactly. So typically, Samian is a very red, but it almost looks like this. Yeah. It's a very reddish brown yeah. kind of clay uh, that's been fired. But this one is obviously been burnt because it has so much. Uh, so have they, uh, as the museum, sort of taken samples to show that's like got charcoal edges to it? To um, show it's, or no, they, they, they no, can just tell can just, just tell. by looking at it because okay. typically it's just red, as it were. That's remarkable. And where, where did you find that piece? Well, I'm not going to give away my fine spot, but uh, <laughs> let's just I'm say cent- central London. Central London. <laughs> is this what you do, you uh, you guys? You do, you don't tell each other where you find your things. Exactly. <laughs> you, 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 you don't want to give away your trade yeah. secrets. So. <laughs> is that true? You're you're very secretive about where oh, you go. Yes, yeah, yeah, the times and when you go. <laughs> everybody's very secretive. Uh, you can kind of tell where things come from just based on how old it is, etc. Because there's different groupings from different areas. Right. So are there actually better places to go on the Thames that that are more renowned for good finds than others? Yes, absolutely. So I, as I mentioned earlier, I live along the Thames in Chiswick, Uh Hammersmith area. Uh, Because the civilization here isn't that old, therefore I don't find many old things along this patch. Uh There have been some super old things like bronze tankards from the Celts and uh, spearheads and other things, Mm. but I've not found any of that around here. Okay. So I normally go into central London because that's where the good stuff is. Okay, don't tell us where. And the north rather than the south is better for older. Yes, again, it's uh, it's more restricted on the north. So along the south bank, I can use my metal detector, I can scrape, I can use a trowel, etc. I thought one, I thought the south you could dig to a certain depth. Uh, Yes, yeah. Okay. But again, with my license, it's only about uh, seven and a half 
uh, centimeters. Okay. So it's not okay. too low. But looking here for the hundreds, you don't, of, need, you, you to, don't need to go too yeah, deep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so this piece of pottery that I'm holding up in my hand now, um, how would you describe that? It looks like the the neck of a some sort of bottle. It looks like the handles. I don't know. It's, it's, it's decorated with a head, a face with a beard of some description. It looks like it could be King Lear or something. I don't. <laughs> I, don't I don't know how to describe it. It's sort of um, browny glaze finish to it. Again, it's got an orangey sort of um, clay content by the looks mm -hmm. of it. I couldn't possibly say with the age of it. This is actually a German stoneware, and uh, it was pretty much a beer bottle, beer bottle. From back in Tudor times. Okay. So you'd put your ale in here, and uh, nothing was cooled at that time, so you didn't have your nice cold beer. You actually had a warm ale. So this is um, actually local. from <laughs> exactly <laughs> this is from Germany. So probably made in the area of Frecken, which is in the Rhine River Valley, and uh, this is one of the largest exports into Tudor London. Is because everybody wanted to use these for their beer drinking or their wine drinking or even decanting other uh, liquids. So this was kind of the stereotypical container back then. I've got pictures, but I won't bother pulling mm. them out, mm. of the globular kind of body that these had. And they also had what's called a cartouche, which is actually on the belly of the vessel. And there's some over in the display cabinet over here. I see. Yeah. And you can see how decorative they all are. And some even have heart shapes on them, mm. like this one down here. Mm. So the stereotypical motif that they have on them is uh, a face, and it's a bearded man. And in German, it's called the Bartmann, which means bearded man. But they're also commonly called uh, Bellamine Jugs. And Cardinal Bellamino uh, was an Italian chap. He was a Catholic, and this was made at the height of the Protestant Reformation in Germany. So you can imagine the hate for Catholics mm -hmm. at that time. So they modeled the face after the Cardinal because he tried to ban booze. <laughs> So to mock him, they actually put his face on right their by beer the neck bottles, of the uh, the top of the bottle, <laughs> and that's why you find so many that are smashed because they would literally smash these things afterwards uh, just to spite him because they were all angry that he Fantastic. tried to ban booze. So we find quite a few of these, as you can see, some of the faces yeah. down here, yeah, and that one I found last weekend. If you remember my post on Instagram, yes. So that is one of the quintessential finds uh, of mudlarks is to find one of these bellamine faces. Uh, they're quite rare, especially to find a complete neck. But uh, I have one complete neck and then many faces and many cartouches as well. Another uh, find that I, I really enjoy is Roman pottery. And again, because the, uh, the Thames mud is so thick and dense, we get large bits of pottery, almost complete pots. This is half of a pot. Uh, but this is black burnish ware, again, from about the 2nd century AD, so roughly 1,800 years old. And again, it's almost a half a pot from Roman times. Remarkable. I mean, we could spend hours and hours and hours <laughs> here, I've absolutely no doubt. And You mentioned before you found some a body or body parts, I think. Mm. Tell, tell us about that, because that's obviously very different to what we're looking at here. So normally I go mudlarking very early in the morning. And uh, I get up around 5.30 and I head down to the river. So I get the first train into central London. Sometimes I take the night bus in. And this is one of those early spring tides that I definitely didn't want to miss. 
And as they say, the early bird gets the worm. So I wanted to be the first one on the foreshore. So I got there extra early, about three hours before low tide, just to make sure that I didn't miss anything. Well, to my surprise, I found uh, something very big sticking face down in the mud. And unfortunately, it was probably a, a jumper from the night before. Um, he was still wearing his clothes, oh, his dear. shoes, everything just uh, face down in the mud. So another mudlark had called the police before I had spotted so you, you him myself. you weren't the first there then? <laughs> I, I wasn't the first one to, to see the body uh, because the other mudlark was coming towards me uh-huh. and I hadn't gone that in that direction yet. Crikey. And the guy was face down in a bit of a ravine. Oh dear. So, yeah. How unpleasant. So, I mean, the, the Thames just throws up everything, isn't it? It, it really is full cycle isn't it through through the centuries and life and death and every culture mm. every every um country so well, i mean that's... presumably then the police come along and then you have to give start giving statements and things or do you, or you some sort of witness statement or um just... and in that instance because i wasn't the first one there and go. i i tried to stay away <laughs> yeah um so i wasn't interviewed oh, crikey. but um but you must find apart from obviously you know as you say you know someone unfortunately jumped off a bridge or whatever from, mm. You come across bones, human remains, and animal remains as well. I would imagine there's quite a lot of that. Uh, yes, because there were a lot of slaughterhouses along the yeah. river, and also yeah. a lot of pub houses, yes. um, public houses, pubs. Uh, they used to throw all of their waste into the river direct. So literally, right. there's areas of the foreshore where it's just covered by bones. And uh, yeah, my kids are always a bit freaked out. Uh, this skull that you see over here... Is, that's not a human skull. That's not a human <laughs> skull. What do you think it is? I would guess that, is it a dog? I don't know. I think it's a fox skull. A fox, okay. So we have a lot of foxes in our area, mm-hmm. and I've seen them actually on the foreshore alive, and I've also seen them dead on the foreshore. This one, I think, has quite a bit of age to it because the bones are quite dark. Mm. Um, but all of the teeth were in there. So I, I do need to show it to um, somebody that uh, is a, a specialist in bones. But uh, it does have the shape of, of a fox skull. Mm. So again, the River Thames has always been considered sacred. And there are burials in the Thames that have washed out uh, over time. And uh, also, as you mentioned previously, Peter Ackroyd has written a book called Thames Sacred River, Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite books about the River Thames. And uh, it's been true for millennia that uh, the River Thames has always been a receptacle of uh, sacred objects. And even to this day, we still find sacred objects in the Thames. So the Celts and even uh, tribes before that would make very beautiful objects and then devote them to the river. They would dedicate those to the Thames, and some of the most spectacular finds that have ever been retrieved from the Thames, which are now in the British Museum, were actually a sacred, they were votive offerings that were offered to the River Thames by the Celtic tribes. So the Battersea Shield, do you know the Battersea Shield? I don't, no. Okay. Um, I'll show you on a website later, but that is one of the the best uh, Celtic finds. So just looking at my library here, there was a an exhibition at the British Museum uh, several years ago called Celts, Art, and Identity. And this is the, uh, the book that came out of the exhibition. And on the cover, it has uh, the best artifact that's ever been recovered from the River Thames, which is called the Battersea Shield, which is uh, made of bronze. And it's got very decorative motifs um, all across the shield itself. 
And some people say that it contains birds and other floral patterns, which are very, yeah, very artistic, very, yeah, very delicately ornate. made. Yeah. yeah, very yeah. ornate. Uh, so this was actually dredged from the river when they were making Chelsea Bridge uh, back in the 19th century. And another artifact that uh, was found in the Thames is uh, the Waterloo helmet, which is one of the few horned helmets that they found from the Celtic tribe. And again, it was in immaculate condition when it was dredged from the River Thames uh, back in the 19th century. So just to show you a couple of artifacts which still prove that the the Thames is considered a holy or sacred river, is we find these things. Can you describe this and maybe figure out what it is? It looks like a sort of ashtray that you'd find in in sort of Portobello Road Market. it, it looks like something you'd, it looks like an earthenware sort of, it does look like a sort of heart petal shaped ashtray with a, a head of um, a, an elephant. It, it, so it looks, it looks sort of Indian style, That's I would suggest. Yes. Yeah. The so, coloring is like red and yellow and white sort of flower petal leaf in the middle. So what is the main festival that the Indians, Hindus celebrate in November? Diwali? Yes, exactly. Okay. So this is a Diwali lamp, so made of terracotta, and what they would do is they would fill this with a G, so mm-hmm. yeah. the, the kind of wax slash fatty type yeah. material, and they would put a wick that flows into this groove here, and then they would light that, and then it would focus or f- operate as a candle, and they would set this into the Thames, and because of its kind of lightweight mm. nature, it would actually float. float. Yeah. So we find hundreds of these Diwali lamps in all shapes and sizes. But these don't have any particular age, do they? Or they? Uh, no, these no. are all modern. Right. Yeah, yeah. so they're all modern. Mm. So this, uh, I probably found it maybe two weeks after Diwali, yes. and there was just a pattern on the foreshore, which had all of these beautiful colored lamps, uh, Diwali lamps, mm. and you can just imagine what it looked like when they lit all of these and let them float on the surface of the Thames. Mm. It must have been magical just to have yes. all of these kind of floating candles, Diwali lamps, just floating down the Thames, yeah. uh, going out to sea. Yes. Well, rivers and water and flowing water, I think, are very holy to yes. certain religions, Hindus particular. I think, are the Ganges, obviously, is a... Absolutely. Sort of a, so the Hindu <laughs> culture here, uh, you know, there's many thousands of Indians that actually live in um, in London. Mm-hmm. They all um, use the Thames as kind of their replacement for the Ganges River. As I mentioned, they use and put in a lot of devotive offerings that kind of symbolize or bring good luck or ward off evil. Mm. And at the moment, we're looking at um, a mantra which is made of lead again, and it's got what is that, nine Sanskrit? squares. Yeah, yeah, it's in Sanskrit. Yeah. And when you add up each one of those sides, it adds up to 36. Okay. So each way, diagonal, sideways, any way you try adds up to 36. The significance being? Um, so this is to ward off uh, evil. And uh, they would throw it into the river because the river, the sacred water, they say energizes it uh-huh. and brings it to life. So that's why we find so many kind of sacred offerings. Even I've found like little snakes. Oh, crikey. In the town. Tiny little snake. Uh, this is a sacred turtle. Little turtle, yeah. It has Sanskrit on yes. it again. It's another mountain. Same numbers on the reverse. Exactly. As well as these wildly decorative objects, uh, like this brass plate, which has a beautiful kind of floral lotus leaf pattern mm-hmm. on it. 
as well as the Om symbol in the the four sides. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just fascinating that after centuries and millennia that the Thames is still considered sacred and that people throw in votive offerings. Here's an, uh, the evil eye, which was worn as a pendant yes. to again ward off evil, yes. as well as this object, which is uh, gold-plated, uh, which is a yes. beautiful decorative object. Yeah. So uh, it is a bit of a question about for mudlarks as to whether we keep these finds uh, that have been devoted to the river for sacred reasons. I keep several in my collection just to show people like yourself and also, I think it's fascinating to document what people are still putting into the Thames and dedicating to the Thames. Mm -hmm. so. Well, I think at the end of the day, the people have put them in. It's a, it's a spiritual thing of belief. They put it in, they believe they put it in, and they're washing you know, the sins or whatever away, or evil's being drifting away on the, the Thames. The, the fact that you're taking it out, I don't think it's going to, they're never going to know one way or the other. <laughs> I don't think it's going to affect, affect their belief in their sure. religion. So I, I can't see that you're doing, doing much harm there, morally or otherwise. Well, we could be here forever, really, and I don't want to take up any more of your time, <laughs> as you, you've been very, very uh, good with your time, and wonderful to see all these amazing artifacts, and hopefully we'll come back, and or you'll tell me when you've got some more exciting <laughs> finds, or maybe even you'll invite me down to the Thames one day if I yeah. can get up as early as you can, Absolutely. as long as we, you you've got to promise me you don't find any dead bodies there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is one thing I couldn't bear to find, that would be pretty horrific. I, I imagine you came straight home again. You didn't carry on digging after that, did you? Or did uh, you? Carried you carried on, on digging. <laughs> <laughs> a, a devoted mudlarker. <laughs> so you have on your Instagram account about 21,000 followers. So clearly what you do is fascinating to a lot of people. So just how do people find you? What is, what is your Instagram account handle? What is, what is the name of your account so people so can find you? So it's at Jason Mudlark. And I post uh, at least two to three times a week. And it's always based on what I found though the weekend before or the stuff that I found the, the day before. So I try to make it interesting. And I try to compare myself a little bit with like Museum of London and the, the British Museum. They have a huge amount of followers, but they don't get very many likes because it's things that aren't tangible. Mm. It's things that are behind closed cabinets that uh, it's just very ex exquisite objects. But the beauty of the Thames is that it's something that you and I would have dropped in the Thames. It's not something that a king or a queen would have dropped in the Thames. And we learn so much about everyday life just from these objects. Mm. And you can also put them to contemporary use. And I think you've got an example, whether you've got it here or not, I don't know, but just explain what, what are the stones called? Uh, garnets. The garnets. Yes. You found a whole load of garnets, a bracelet, I believe. And you've done something very special with it. So just explain a little bit about what you're doing there. Yeah, so there's a, a lot of mysteries still along the Thames, and there's a lot of unexplained things. Um, one thing that uh, most mudlarks still are baffled about is we find a lot of oyster shells. Oysters themselves were a common dish in medieval times. Even the Romans loved their oysters. Now it's very much a delicatessen that you and I can't afford. Mm -hmm. uh, but back in the day, that was kind of like their main meal. They ate oysters. But we find a lot of oyster shelves with a very square hole punched into the top of them. And we still don't know exactly why they have a square hole. Sometimes they're perfectly round as well. It looks so intentional. Mm -hmm. But uh, you would think that punching a hole would shatter the shell. Similarly, uh, we find a lot of red garnets, and garnets are not uh, native to the Thames. Uh, they're not native even to the UK. 
Uh, we think they're actually from India or possibly Australia. So there's many theories about how these garnets actually arrived uh, in London and then uh, were dropped in the Thames. My favorite one that I don't think actually happened, but it's a cool story, is that maybe a load of garnets was being delivered to a local jeweler that was along the Thames. And instead of actually uh, unloading it, they dropped it into the Thames perf uh, purposefully in order to go back at low tide and dig them up and then take them home for themselves. Okay. But we found quite a few of them in many different areas. So this is... Uh, I've got them all in a Tic Tac container, yeah. uh, but we find this is maybe just uh, 30 of them, but I have found hundreds of these garnets, and you can see they're of a pretty good size as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So uh, my daughter loves to go mudlarking with me, and uh, her favorite find is these red garnets because they really sparkle in the sunlight. So she's collected many of them, and what we had done is uh, I posted them on uh, Instagram, and two people actually from the United States contacted me saying they would make something for my daughter if I would send them uh, some garnets. So I sent each of them 25 garnets. And uh, I said one could make a ring and one could make a pendant. And the pendant was finished last weekend. And it's actually sitting outside my house right now, uh, having been delivered. So this is a really exciting time because we're now actually in the process of opening a FedEx parcel, which has arrived today from Texas in America, where um, Jason sent a whole load of garnets to be made into, uh, this is the bracelet, I think you said, didn't uh, you? The pendant. The, the pendant, I beg your pardon, for his daughter. Yeah. yeah. So she's very excited because we're just about to open this up and see what the Thames has thrown up and been made into. So here we go. Packaging is coming out. Packaging, so oh, we've got another one. It's like past, past the parcel. <laughs> We have a plastic sealed envelope, which is being opened, inside of which is a letter. Do you want to read that out? Okay. Hello, Jason. I hope this pendant brings happiness to you and your family. This pendant itself is made of sterling silver and the necklace is steel cable coated with night. Does that say nylon? nylon? Nylon with a silver clasp. I have used an old mine cut garnet set in, in reverse as an accent and to illustrate what the rough garnets might look like if they were cut. Good luck with your article for the glassing magazine. Please let me know when it is out so that I can read it. Also, it would be great if you would include me in the article so I might get some publicity. Let me know if you have any more questions. Sincerely, Edward. Well, he's going to get more publicity than he bargained for. Is <laughs> he's actually going out on uh, your London Legacy podcast. He never anticipated that. So I think we're, we're getting down to the final bit of packaging. Come on, Malika, let's get this box open. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's so pretty. So I think we'll ha I, I think we'll have to take a picture of Malika or the pendant and get that up on the uh, on the podcast. So that was seriously exciting watching her face light up. Something from the Thames made into a beautiful pendant for her full of old garnets from London to America and back again. 
back again here we are sitting in London and I think we're going to wrap up now because we've taken up plenty of your time so just thank you very much for your time and no, showing us everything I've enjoyed and it. uh, it's been a real treat to, to meet you and to see everything you've got here and keep on the mudlarking and I'll keep following you on Instagram and we'll keep in touch and I need so to take you down to the Thames you now. will have to take me down clear the bodies first <laughs> <laughs> lovely to see you thank you very much indeed no, thank Jason thank you